morning from me. Uh, we're in our series on 1 Corinthians 11, so if you've got a Bible or a phone with the Bible on it or some other clever way of reading the Bible, do grab it now. Um, we're looking at 1 Corinthians, and uh, my task this morning really is just to introduce the next chunk that we're looking at, and then I'm going to hand over to Jenny uh, to look at the specifics of today's uh, piece. Uh, so we are looking at this... Uh, a letter of Paul to the church in Corinth under the heading of five big issues, five ideas. The, the letter divides into five kind of broad chunks looking at five different issues. And uh, if that's new to you, if you're, this is your first Sunday, there's a blog on our church website which you can read which explains that. I'm not going to recap all of that today for the sake of time. And there's this wonderful picture thing that uh, people called the Bible Project have produced that we've been using as a bit of a guide for our working through the series. That's, um, that's all on the website if you want to look at that. So we're looking today at this chunk, 1 Corinthians 11 to 14. Well, if we're not looking at all of that today, you'll be very pleased to hear because we would be here quite a long time and lunch would be cold, um, very cold. Um, we are going to be looking at this over the next few weeks. So, so far, we have looked at the first chunk was about, to test it whether anyone was listening, first chunk of 1 Corinthians Unity, unity and relationship and the fact that we're supposed to be one together. The second chunk was about relationships, sexuality, those kind of questions. And the third chunk, which Sanjay finished last week, was about food and culture and those kind of things. So, um, and in each section, we found that there's, there's some presenting issues that the church in Corinth was facing. And then, but underpinning that, there's a gospel issue. There's a there's a timeless, transferable truth, which is what we're really trying to dig into and see how that applies to our lives today. And as we come to this section of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, 11 to 14, over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at um, some issues that, uh, firstly, in chapter 11, we're not, we're not actually looking at, looking at them in the, in the, the, the order that they, they are here for various reasons, but we'll be looking at the question of head coverings, a curious question in 1 Corinthians 11 that many of us find somewhat perplexing and what's all that to do with how does that apply today so we're looking at that in a few weeks we're looking today at the lord's supper which gets started actually in chapter 10 and then comes into focus in chapter 11 Uh, we're looking in chapters 12 and 14 at the questions of worship and how we do worship and how the spiritual gifts are supposed to work and then in the middle of all that is this thing about love which you know this seems a slight it seems to us at times to be a slight odd collection of um themes and this is this this is a chapter we often hoik out to do at weddings isn't it we are let's do one Corinthians 13 classic wedding reading um maybe that's the only time you've heard it i don't know um this section does connect to the previous section uh, you'll see there a little connection between the lord's supper and chapter 10 which sanjay looked at last week and sanjay talked about the whole question of privilege and rights and the fact that we get to lay down our privilege and rights for the sake of others and that leads us in very nicely to this, uh, this piece of 1 Corinthians. If we were to flick through, uh, we would find a theme that comes out really strongly. Uh, I'm not going to flick through the, the book just at the moment because of time, but chapter 10, 24 says, seek the good of others. Chapter 10, 20, 30, 33 says, not seeking my own advantage. So you can see already the stuff that Sanjay was talking about last week carries straight on into this section. Wait for one another. Use your gifts, whatever gift you have, use them for the common good, for each other's good. 
in chapter 12, it talks about the body, a famous picture of the body of Christ being like a human body. We need one another. That's the main point there. We all need all the different parts. Chapter 13 is about love, which is really about one another. And, and in chapter 14, there's a whole bunch of references that basically say, let your gifts build up God's people. So I trust you can see there's a really clear theme starting to emerge there. Uh, Paul might summarize that, seek the common good. You know, seek the, Jesus would have said, love your neighbor, which Jesus did say, love your neighbor. Um, and what we'll see in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, which we're going to read in a moment, is love, love others more than yourselves, and love others more than yourselves by using your gifts to build others up. There's a really strong theme that comes out in these, in these uh, four chapters. And as we look at them over the next three weeks, we just, we just need to keep that in focus. So let's read 1 Corinthians 13 together. Which actually, it just starts in the last verse in chapter 12. Now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... So that's referring forward to chapter 14, which talks about tongues. If, I'm a, if, I'm, if I speak in tongues but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy it does not boast. It is not proud. It is not easily rude. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we, all, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we shall see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Really familiar words. And I trust you can see that in this sweep from 1 Corinthians 10, 11 into 14, it's the backbone. It provides the context for everything that we look at. This idea of the common good. And we might, this idea of sacrificial love, I'm just trying to think of some everyday examples. First example is someone... um, paragliding or something suppose you're you've got just got married to someone and they've got a really weird hobby like paragliding they might want to take you with them to try and enjoy their hobby and and you might be in fear and trepidation but you 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 sacrifice your preferences for the sake of this new love relationship this person that you want to do stuff with or a parent who their child might want to get onto some really messy hobby. And you think, really? Really? I, I would. And perhaps Ruth would get into the messy stuff. I would go, really? It's a bit messy. But, but you do it for the sake of your love for that child. You lay down your rights. As Sanjay was saying like last week, you lay down your rights for the sake of this person. The supreme example, of course, is Jesus on the cross who laid down his very life for us. And it's often 
put forward in the scriptures as the supreme example of love. So love is not just a squidgy feeling. Love means setting aside your rights, your preferences, your way of doing things for the sake of others. So that's really the theme that we'll be looking at over these next three weeks in various ways. I want to just say one more thing before Jenny comes uh, about breaking bread, communion, which is today's topic. We're going to be looking at this today. Some of you will remember in September, I think it was, we did a little survey on the church website. Um, who took part in that? Some of you probably won't remember. It was, actually, it was, quite, it was really well um, engaged with, which is surprising. Sometimes we put stuff out and we get a few responses. There was loads of responses. Thank you. I was brought up in a Baptist church where we all use separate little cups. Any of those little Baptist little cups yet? And, and it was a particular kind of Baptist church that, it t- that when we broke bread, when we did communion, often non-Baptists were asked to leave the room. All right? So um, that's just the flavor of um, our place. So we all come with experience to this thing. And this is what this survey was supposed to be trying to flush out. And the survey showed us, as expected, that we all have... Very diverse backgrounds. We're a, we're a church in the city, a diverse city. People, we've all come from different backgrounds. And um, 19 of us say we have a Pentecostal background. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to all the Pentecostals. 27% of us, Baptist background. That's me. Yeah. 33% of us have an Anglican background. And 42% of us say we have a new church background. That's the kind of church we are. So those, that's that's... That's, that's, I'm not sure that was a question on the survey, so there's, Mr. Scientist down here was querying the, the survey methodology, but that's a, anyway. um, 8% of us would refer to it as Eucharist in our church tradition. Um, Eucharist is a word that means thanksgiving. 21% of us refer to it as the Lord's Supper. 25% refer to it as breaking bread. And 87% of us would know it as communion. So there's a diversity of language and background. Some of us refer to it by multiple things. So, dear, oh dear, So, several of you gave more than one answer. That's what's going on there. That's what's going on there. Now, one of the things that struck me through this survey was how the text that Jenny's about to unpack to us compares to our experience. So here's, well, here's my little uh, communion glasses from my Baptist church here. So the text says. Um, one loaf it's a phrase that comes up in the text 70, 72% of us said we had experienced communion with one loaf, one loaf being broken that means a number of us experienced communion without one loaf um, only 52% of us experienced it as one cup and what I mean by non-individual focus there's a focus in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 on doing this together, coming together as a fellowship, as a communion and recognising the body that focus, only 53% of us said we experienced that in communion. Um, and the, the idea of thankfulness, this word Eucharist meaning thankfulness, only 23% of us said communion was a joyful experience. Um, it was something else for most of us. And that's not to mention, another thing is one more, I said one more. Yeah, part of a fellowship meal. In the text, which we're about to look at, it's part of a fellowship meal. Um, 6% of us. So when we look at those numbers, and compare them to the text, I just want to suggest there's a little bit of a problem that we come to this whole question of breaking bread with certain preconceptions um, from our church background and experience. And 
uh, as we come to the text just now, we need to come humbly and say, God, what are you saying? What are you teaching in this? What are the key, and actually, what are the key aspects? Does, this, does all these questions matter? Or uh, are there some other things that the scripture text, the text looks at with us? And this is one of the reasons we're looking at 1 Corinthians now. Uh, we wanted, we wanted, back last year, we decided we wanted to refresh the way we did communion in the church. And this is so one of the ways that we are engage with that so over to jenny who actually incidentally jenny we've asked jenny to lead a communion team so each week we break bread or do communion jenny's and her team are going to be helping us do that so we get a little bit more consistency in that so over to jenny thank you can i have the clicker thanks um great so hello my name is jenny i'm on the leadership team and have been since 2016 i think i put my leaf on the wrong bit there um but anyway, I've been, I've been around for a few years. Um, so we are going to be looking at uh, the text. And because it's a fairly short passage, we, can, we have the luxury of being able to go through it verse by verse and pick out the bits that don't necessarily seem entirely obvious. So that's why I've got some highlighting. You'll note there are two highlighted colours. Blue means we're going to look at it now. Orange means we're coming back to it later. Okay, <laughs> so... Um, Feel free to find this in your Bibles, or the words will be up on the screen. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. So that means that when this early church was coming to meet together, they were going away in a worse state than when they arrived. That's not not good for a church gathering, is it? First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But, of course, there must be divisions among you, so that you, those of you who have God's approval will be recognized. So this word for God's approval is referring to people whose faith is genuine. And what Paul is saying is, if there are people in your gatherings where some of them have genuine faith and some of them don't, of course there will be dis- disagreements. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. Um, We'll talk about that a bit more. That that will become obvious. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I Sorry, it's different. <laughs> for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, "This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself 
before eating the bread and drinking the cup. It's saying take time to check where your heart is before taking part in this meal. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So he's talked here about an unworthy manner of taking communion. And that's kind of explained, I'll, I'll talk about the context in a second, but that unworthy manner that he's talking about is this difference between rich and poor and people eating their own meals. Um, yeah. That is why, sorry, so he says... If you do it without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. So he's saying this is really serious. Some people in the congregation have become ill and even died because of the way that they are dishonoring this act and this act of remembrance and this meal. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters when I arrive. So, the context here is that Paul is telling the Corinthians off. They're not behaving well, um, and people are going away in a worse state than when they arrived at this gathering of the Lord's people. So they're eating individual meals. We've got, so Andy said that it, communion was taken as part of a fellowship meal. So people were bringing their own food, and the rich were eating lavish meals and getting drunk, and the poor didn't have enough food to t- satisfy their hunger and were being totally disregarded. He says, this is not the Lord's Supper. You cannot call what you are doing here the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is in complete contradiction to uh, the self-sacrificing love of Jesus that we are supposedly celebrating here. Um, so, what is the Lord's Supper, if not that? Uh, so, in, um, so, it's a shared meal. So Paul tells them not to eat their own private meals, but to eat a shared meal. Um, and we're given the mechanics here in these verses, and it also uh, appears in the Gospels, unsurprisingly. Um, so, if you've got your Bibles, I don't have this on the screen, but we're just going to look at the account in Matthew 26 to find out what the Lord's Supper actually is. So it's in Matthew 26, verse 26. It's also almost word for word the same in Mark, um, and then it's in Luke 22 as well. So it says, While they were eating, it's there together, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. So the first part is, we're doing it together. Take bread, give thanks. That's what Jesus did. Some translations say he blessed it. It's the same word as giving thanks. Um, And eat it together. Verse 27, then he took a cup. 
And when he had given thanks, he gave it to all of them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the mechanics are really simple. If anyone, like process people, it's a four-stage process. (laughs) Take bread, break it, and eat it. Take wine, share the cup, give thanks, drink it together. So why is this simple process, this simple act, so important to Christians? Why, why, why are we commanded to do it? And why is bread and wine really important? So firstly, I'm going to pick up my props. No prizes for guessing what they are. Um, so firstly, it is an act of remembrance. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Now this remember is not like recall. It's not, oh, I remember my husband's phone number. It's deeper than that. It's reconnecting to something. It's revisiting. It's telling stories. It's appreciating. It's getting to know deeply. It's pondering. It's reminiscing. That's what we're going to do later this afternoon with our looking at the church timeline. We are retelling the story we're telling each other, we're reminiscing about the things that have happened and the people that have been here and our own part in that story. We did this at Eileen's Thanksgiving this week. We, sh- we got together, we spent time, we talked about her life, we shared stories, we felt like we understood her and knew her better as a result after it. That's the kind of remembering we're talking about. The Bible talks a lot about remembering the acts of God. Um, when the Israelites... Uh, came out of uh, Egypt, Um, God told them in certain festivals when they were celebrating and remembering, God said, only eat bread without yeast in it. This is a way of remembering the rush that you were in when you were leaving Egypt. He didn't have time to make bread properly, and so eat bread without yeast as a way of remembering the journey that you've been on. Psalms do the same thing. There's a lot in the Psalms about meditating on the word of the Lord, remembering his ways. There's lots of Psalms of thanksgiving, like the one that Steve wrote for us. Isn't that great? We have a Psalm that tells our story. So in the same way, this act of breaking bread is an act of remembrance for Jesus. Secondly, it says that we proclaim, or some translations say we announce the coming of Jesus until he returns. We announce the Lord's death until he comes again. How, how, how is that the case? So the Lord's Supper, breaking bread, taking communion, communicates a story of love to the world. It's a story of sacrificial love in which Jesus gave up his life on the cross that we might have life. This proclamation, this telling of the story, we're commanded to do it until he returns again. And then we will have something altogether other and wonderful to celebrate. It's breaking bread, sharing a communion is an evangelistic act of the gospel. We're telling the story of Jesus' death as we share in this meal. 
It also looks forward to the day that Jesus will come again. In Matthew, the version we've just read, Jesus says he won't drink wine again until he drinks it with his disciples in the new kingdom. That means we can have confidence that there is a new kingdom, that Jesus will come again. And until then, we have this to remind us. So this meal is a, helps us to look back, to remember, and to look forward to, what, to Jesus coming again, to the new kingdom. And so when we take communion at OCC, we choose to speak about and remember, um, remember and proclaim Jesus' life and death and what he's done for us. We choose to focus on the cross. And it's right and honouring to take time to do this together. So what are the things that we focus on and, how, and what, what do we choose to remember and choose to proclaim? Firstly, that our sins are forgiven. Amen. Um, In Romans, it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes me. That includes all of you. None of us is worthy to be in relationship with God. It also says in Romans that we are justified by by his grace and by his death through the redemption that is in Jesus. There is no condemnation. There There is judgment but we are justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Um, 1 John 2 says, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. The price is already paid. We don't have to sacrifice goats and oxen and all other manner of animals that had to be sacrificed under the old covenant. Joe talked earlier about faith and hope. We can have certainty because Jesus died on the cross that our sins are forgiven. That's one of the amazing things that we remember when we take communion together, when we take take part in this meal. We can walk into freedom. We are no longer bound by sin and darkness, by all the bad things that sin does to us, those things don't have a hold on us because we are forgiven. Secondly, we remember that... I I try to... um, I like to be able to remember lists. If you like me and you like to be able to remember lists, the, the, the acronym for this is either SCORN or CORNS, neither of which I felt were really appropriate to sort of set the right tone. So I haven't done that. But if, if, you're inter- if you want to try and remember the five things, sin forgiven, new covenant. Um, so God has made a new covenant with us. A covenant is not really a word that we use very much in, in, our, in this modern day and age. Um, but it means a promise. It's like, I've got a picture here of like a legal seal. It's a promise. So when people get married, they enter into a covenant with one another. In Hebrews 8, um, quoting Jeremiah 31, which is a, a prophetic book in the Old Testament, it says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. 
This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. In this new covenant, we can all know God. That, isn't that an amazing truth? We can know God. We can, we can know him and be known by him. We can be in a relationship with him. The old covenant is what we read about in the Old Testament. It's characterized by sacrificing animals at the temple in order to atone for sin, in order to make up for sin and set things right. It's re- that, praise the Lord, is replaced by this new covenant, which is Jesus' death on the cross, and we can enter into that through the grace that is poured out. Jesus says in the 1 Corinthians and Matthew that his blood is now the sacrifice that atones for our sin, his blood. There's a price that needs to be paid for sin. We are, sin gets in the way of us having a relationship with God. God is so holy and pure and perfect, and we are not worthy. We are not worthy of coming close. We're not worthy of, of, of knowing him and being known by him, but by the grace of the cross. Thirdly, we are part of one body. When we share in this meal together, we are all standing together, looking at the cross, recognizing where we stand, and we're alongside each other. There is unity among us as the church when we share in this meal. There's also, we also remember that we're part of not just this church family here in Oxford, but the global church family brothers and sisters around the world celebrate and remember and proclaim as we do the 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 death and resurrection of Jesus in sharing in this meal this isn't I this was a bit of a revelation for me this meal this simple meal of bread and wine is this isn't a new western expression of church it's not like Worship songs have changed over the 2,000 years since Jesus was here. Communion, breaking bread in this way, that, that's been handed down to us directly from Jesus. The way we do it might look a little bit different, but we try and do it as close to the text as we can. Again, coming back to um, the idea that communion was taken as part of a shared meal. So the, the church was sharing a meal together and as part of that, they took bread and wine. Um, that was a countercultural thing in Corinth. Corinth was a really diverse city. There were lots of people that would travel from all over to live there. There were rich and poor. There were people from different countries. Um, and in the same way, us sharing a meal together is a countercultural thing, isn't it? Um, 
like having a meal with people who are diverse in race and background and class and age is is not a normal thing in 21st century Oxford, really. Our lives are distinctive as Christians, and this is one expression of that. Fourthly, we are nourished. Jesus said in John, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's a connection between physical bread and physical wine and spiritual bread and wine. When we eat this physical bread as part of breaking bread and taking the Lord's Supper, we remember that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In me, you do not need to go hungry. Jesus has everything we need. Our souls need nourishment in the same ways that our bodies need nourishment. And this is a reminder to ourselves that Jesus is the nourish, the spiritual nourishment that we need. Fifthly, reconciliation. It's quite a hard one to find a picture for, um, but I've gone for hands reaching. The door is open for us to be reconciled with God. Trying to get your head around that is, is a, a big one. <laughs> so let me just try and help you, because this helps me. So... God created the world. God created galaxies, which have literally an uncountable number of stars in them. Think of like an uncountable number of stars, and then one of them is the sun. The sun is pretty big and pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, we would, we would not be here without the sun. And there are billions of them. Another... For people who prefer to think of things on a smaller scale, there are 33,600 types of fish, and God created all of them. I tried to... Okay, how many um, species of ant do you think there might be? I got to five. Big, <laughs> flying, red, uh, termite, and normal. <laughs> Turns out... <laughs> Oh, all right. In fact, ant four. Termites not an ant. Turns out there are 12,000 species of ant, according to the internet. That's a lot. That's, a, that, like, that's a ridiculous level of creativity, isn't it? And, and God created all these amazing things, and he created you, and he understands how your body works better than you, better than doctors, better than anyone else. He understands the minute detail of everything he has created, and he has created massive things, and unthi- like we just can't get our heads around God's incredible creation if we try. We, we can try, we can get further, and for me, this is something that really helps me to like tr- comprehend a little more the utter like 
like massiveness of God. My English words just just aren't good enough, but enormity, thank you, that's a better word. Um, Like, that's how amazing God is. And he wants to be in relationship with me. He wants to know me. He wants me to be his daughter. He calls me his daughter. That's mind-blowing. That God, that God wants to, is reconciled with us, his people, and we can know him, we can be in relationship with him. It's, it's so hard to do this justice, because it's more than that, because reconciliation means that there was a broken relationship before. It's not like there was indifference before. There was a broken relationship before. I've no need to reconcile the relationship with a friend if we've not had some sort of falling out. God and humans have fallen out because we have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God and we can't, we can't make up that gap on our own. But reconciliation, the reconciliation that was achieved by Jesus at the cross is what means that we can come into right relationship with him. That's what means that we can, we can approach him in our worship and we can be confident that he hears, that he loves it when we worship, that he is listening, that he is with us. This reconciliation has already happened. We can have firm confidence that God wants to be in relationship with us and loves us and his, his goodness is running after us like we sang earlier, that he's for us because he's already done it. This is how we have confidence in God's love. Jesus has already paid the price so that we can know God. And so here I've just put up these five things again as a reminder. So when we take communion, move my phone out of the way. When we break the bread and give thanks for it and share it and drink the wine and give thanks for it and share it, there's a real richness that it's difficult to give time to when we do communion together on a Sunday morning. And I'm really glad that we've had this time where we can just talk a bit more about it at length. We remember the length that God went to to be in relationship with us, that we are reconciled with God, we are one with God, that bridge is that that bridge between us and Him has been made. We remember that our sins are forgiven. We remember that we, as God's family, are one body, we are united. We remember that there is, we are now under the new covenant, which means that we are, by God's grace, in part of his family. All we need to do is accept it. And we remember that we are spiritually nourished by God. Communion is a gift of grace. When we eat the bread and drink the wine, we remember this and we proclaim the gospel five more minutes. I'll be quick. I just wanted to talk practically about how we do communion at OCC because we try and do it as close to the text that we read here in 1 Corinthians as we can while balancing um, things like trying to make it in, in, making it inclusive for people who can't eat gluten bread or can't or don't want to drink alcoholic wine, for example, 
Um, so the tone that we set, we aim to set, is to have space to remember with joy, with honest reflection, and space to examine ourselves. Um, doing it in homes, for example, allows more space and more time for sharing. We've got that opportunity now as we share church lunch together. We can talk about what Jesus is doing in our lives. Why don't you ask someone over lunch, tell me about what Jesus is doing in your life at the moment. We try and do it regularly. Um, the Bible says we, could, we should do it regularly, but not ritualistically. So we do it about every three or four weeks. And this is the important bit, who participates. Andy said that in his Baptist tradition, non-Baptists were not allowed to participate. What we believe at OCC is that communion, bread and wine, is for anyone who is following Jesus and has been born again, anyone who is seeking to put their trust in him. Visitors from other churches and other church backgrounds are more than welcome to take part. And children who have made a commitment to give their life to Jesus are also welcome to take part when, when we do it when they're in. So... Communion is a really rich gift, and it's a privilege to be able to have it together and take part and remember all of these things. So I wonder, as, we're, as we share it together now and as we um, take bread and wine over lunch, just reflect on these things. Maybe one of them has stood out more than the others as as something that you don't think about very often or don't know. Talk about it with people, share stories, um, and remember that communion is a gift. <laughs>